the, the past five weeks, Keith has been uh, doing or has done a series on the Holy Spirit. And I would encourage you, if you missed any of those messages, to either go on our website or uh, go to our podcast and listen to those. I thought it was an incredibly powerful series, uh, convicting series, and encouraging series as Keith talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, this morning, we're, we're going to shift, and I'm actually going to be here this morning as well as next week doing a short two-week series called Before and After, uh, Pictures of the Gospel. Uh, my, my goal is to be able to show us, uh, there, there's, there's many places in the Bible that we get like a before and after picture of what it means that we're saved in Christ. But my goal is simply to look at two of those, one this morning and then one next week as well. Uh, this past week was a bit of an eventful week in the Kaufman household. Uh, and the reason for that was because we started a new house project in our home. Now, you have to understand when I say we started a new house project, I use that term kind of like maybe some of you talk about your favorite sports teams. Like we won the game or we lost the game when in reality you, you did nothing but maybe yell at the TV, cry or whatever else. Uh, well, when I say we started a new house project, what I really mean is uh, Dave Ulrich and my father-in-law started a new house project at our house this week. I put up a light. That's about all I did all week. Uh, but I, I'm curious, how many, of you, how many of you here this morning love doing house projects or love thinking about house, like love planning house projects, doing your house? Not as many as I expected. Okay. All right. Well, how many of you are more like me and you dread the thought of house projects? Am I alone on that? No? Okay, good. Good. Yeah, I, my wife and I are on opposite sides of that which we've realized is probably a good thing because on the one hand, we don't end up spending too much money and doing too many things, but on the other hand, we don't just let our house deteriorate and lose value uh, and go to trash. So we, we've realized it's probably a good combination there. Uh, but, but we've been talking about this house project. Uh, my wife has wanted to knock out one of the walls in our uh, first floor, be able to open things up. And so here's a picture of actually what it looked like uh, early Tuesday morning. And then Dave and my father-in-law came in that day, uh, and here's a picture of what it looked like afterwards. I, I know what you're thinking. You're like, that, that's a really good-looking light there. That's the light that I hung, actually. It does look really good, I know. That's all I did. Uh, but it, it's incredible, I think, to see kind of the before and after, of just what one knocking one wall out can change. I, I think that whether we actually even like house projects or not, we love to see before and after pictures. I think that's part of why there's so many home renovation shows, is we love to see before and after. We love to see change. We love to see transformation. Which gets me to think, well, why do we love before and after pictures? Why do we love to see the before, the after, and the change that happen? And, and I think there's, there's three reasons that jump to my mind. Number one, uh, we love to see the way that things were. We love to see how different things were beforehand. And so I have, I have a couple more before and after pictures, but here's one. That before, maybe the picture looked uh, clustered and dirty and nasty, and then we see the after picture, we're like, oh my goodness, I, I can't believe it's that difference, that different. We love to see how things were before the change. Uh, I think we also, we love to see how incredible the change is in some ways. But sometimes these before and after pictures show us how incredible it is. And so here's another one. Here, here's the before of the outside of a house. 
and then the after of the outside of the house. It almost looks like a completely different house. It is a completely different house. The change is incredible. And then I think we also, sometimes in before and after pictures, we like them because they show us now what the result or what the purpose is of that after. That there may be a, a new purpose for whatever's been done. And so here's one last one. Before, of kind of a useless upstairs or attic space, and then after, it's this incredible bathroom. has a completely new purpose. As I said, I, I want to look at some before and after pictures the Bible gives us of our salvation, uh, ultimately to see what we've been saved from, how incredible our salvation is, and to see what we've been saved for. And so this morning we're going to look at maybe one of the most vivid uh, and in some ways shocking before and after picture, picture the Bible gives us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So if you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be this morning. I want to just start by reading verses 1 through 3, because that's kind of the before picture, and then come back later and read verses 2 through 4. Uh, But let me pray for us before we do read. Father, we look to you as the ultimate renovator, as the ultimate one who brings about change. God, we recognize we desperately need to be changed and that the only one who can bring about real, lasting, good change in our lives is you. So God, I pray this morning our eyes would be on you. We realize that uh, our flesh, our bodies are fading. They They don't last forever. They're here today and gone tomorrow, but your word lasts forever. The same word that you spoke thousands of years ago, you continue to speak through now, and you will continue to speak through long after we're gone. And so I pray this morning that you would speak to us through this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In verses 1 through 3, Paul puts an x-ray machine, an an MRI, on what our condition was before or apart from Christ. And it is devastating if we'll just sit in it for a minute. And really all I want to be able to say as we look at this and see how does he describe us before or apart from Christ is to see that our condition before Christ or apart from Christ is worse than we thought or worse than we think. Our condition apart from Jesus is worse than we thought or think. I see five kind of main ways Paul describes us in here. Uh, the, The first one, it says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. 
that, that we had as much spiritual life as a body laying in the morgue has physical life, which is to say none. And he says, what we uh, blindly followed the ways of this world. That's what guided us. And so I think what he's saying there is that whatever the surrounding kind of culture, world told us this is what you should do, this is what you should value, this is what you should want, this is what you should chase after, we went for without any second thought. And then it gets worse. He says, you were actually followers of Satan. That's the most, I think, shocking one to me in some ways. That we were, he says, following the prince of the power of the air. That what Satan wanted us to do, we did. That, that the air of his influence is what we breathed in day and night. And then Paul says, we just chased after our passions and desires. That whatever we craved, whatever we wanted, whatever we, desired, we went for, without thinking about uh, how it might affect others, without thinking about what God thinks about it. Just we wanted it, so we went after it. And then he said, the, the, the final result of all of that is we were children of wrath. Don't, don't miss that, that. Sometimes we can convey this idea that everyone is God's child, that God is the father of everyone in this world. And the Bible just simply, I don't think, teaches that. I think it says the people who are in Christ have been adopted into God's family and he is their father. But before Christ, we were children of his wrath. This is a devastating picture of us before Christ. Think of, this is worse than any crisis situation we could picture ourselves in. It's worse than sitting in our home watching a tornado barrel towards us helpless. It's worse than being caught in a riptide, pulled out to sea, as there's nothing we can do to get out of it. This is worse than any other crisis situation we can imagine. And also, don't miss that Paul says, it's not just that, like, the devil made me do it. It's not just that I was born into sin. It's not just that the world was telling me what to do. It's that I joined in. I was following after my passions. I was following after my desires. I did whatever I wanted. I was contributing to my own demise. I, I get this picture of uh, when, I, when I was in middle school, my family uh, went and visited Niagara Falls. Maybe some of you have been to Niagara Falls. And the first thing we kind of did when we were there was we went to the bottom of the falls. And I remember just standing at the bottom of the falls. And in some ways, think about how incredible it is and yet how terrifying it is just all this water pouring over. And I'm thinking, how stupid were the people who would get into barrels and go over the edge of this? It's ridiculous. And then I remember we walked up to the top, or we were at the top, and we were walking along the river that kind of dumps down in and heads towards the falls. Uh, and you have to understand, I'm the youngest of three brothers, so I always kind of had to picture, like, worst-case scenario. Uh, and so I'm imagining, what if one of my brothers pushes me into this water uh, and thinks it's a joke? But you see all these signs that say, don't, don't swim, boats don't go past here, because if you get in, you just get sucked towards the edge of the falls. The picture Paul gives us is not that we've been pushed into the water, not that we accidentally fell in, it's that we're in it and we are actively swimming towards the edge of the falls. We're not in there crying out for help apart from God coming after us. We are in there swimming towards our own demise, and we don't even realize it. 
the picture Paul gives us is a devastating before picture of what life was like apart from Christ. I, I think the, how this showed up in us, or how it does show up in us, if we still haven't put our faith in Christ, is one way is we just had, uh, we didn't have any love for God and we didn't have any desire for God. That we may have known about him and we may have tried to serve him, but we did it as disgruntled employees with a boss. That we did it out of fear of what's he going to do if we don't serve him, or we did it hoping that he would give us some reward in return. And then the other way is that Paul kind of lays out for us is we just did whatever felt good. Whatever I thought was right in my eyes, I did. Whatever I wanted, I did. That's what I went after. And I think it's important for us to see, don't miss that that description is what much of the culture around us says, this is what it means to be alive. Follow your heart. Chase after your desires. Do what feels good. That's what it means to be alive, our culture would say. And Paul says, no, that's what it means to be dead apart from Christ. So why, why would Paul give us such a heavy picture of ourselves? Why, why not just talk about how great Jesus is? Why lay out for us, this is how awful we were before apart from Christ? I, I think two reasons pop to mind. Number one is we, myself included, are really good at fooling ourselves into thinking we're better than we are. We're really good at fooling ourselves into thinking we were better than we were. Uh, I was on vacation two weeks ago with my wife. We went to West Virginia. And so it was like a four-hour drive. And what, what I like to do when we go on a longer drive is to find a new podcast to listen to. Uh, and so often I'm drawn to kind of the uh, criminal, crime, drama-type podcasts. And so this past time, I picked out a podcast called Dirty John. Uh, maybe some of you have listened to it. It's, it's a TV show now as well, I know. And it's the story of a man who fools other people, especially who fools women, into thinking he's something he's not. He convinces them he's this wealthy anesthesiologist, has multiple houses, is this great, caring, loving guy. And then ultimately, he just tries to get their stuff and if they break up with him, he tries to blackmail them. In reality, he's a drug addict, he's been in and out of prison, and he's often homeless. But he's really, really good at fooling other people to think he's better than what he actually is. He's a great con artist. In some ways, we are all great con artists, fooling both ourselves as well as others that we either were better than what we were apart from Christ, or we think we are better than what we really are. And I think Paul just wants us to say, stop fooling yourself. Stop fooling yourself in thinking that you just needed a little extra help. You just needed one more. Th Christ was just an add-on to your life. Because the, the second reason I think Paul lays this out is we don't see how great the gospel is until we see how hopeless we are. We don't fully rely on Christ until we see how helpless we are apart from him. So picture with me, to, to kind of drive some picture with me, that you're out looking for a new home. And you walk into two different homes. The first one you walk into uh, has been recently remodeled. Uh, and it's nice, and, and really all it needs is on one of the walls, you need, you need a new paint of coat, 
or sorry, a new coat of paint. Uh, and you need to put furniture and hang stuff on the walls. That's, that's really all it needs. Pr pretty much anyone can, can do it, just some add-ons. Then picture with me, you go to a second house. And you get there, and on the outside, there's vines all over the house. In one place, the roof is falling in. The walls seem to be leaning in. You, you open up the door, worried what's going to happen. You open it up, and rats scurry away as you look inside. It, the, the smell just overwhelms you. You take a step inside, and, and your foot falls through the rotted floor. You see the stairs are falling down. You see there's mold all over the walls. And you know in that moment, it's going to take an incredible power, an incredible renovator, lots of time to be able to make this house livable. It's going to take some incredible power to change this. Until we see how desperate, hopeless, helpless, bad we are apart from Christ, we don't realize how incredible a power it takes to make us alive, to save us, to draw us back to Christ. Verses 1 through 3 read like a terminal diagnosis from a doctor. They, they read like, this is your condition. This is how bad it is. This is how awful things are. This is the fact that you're, you're going to die, and this is how soon it's coming. And then the doctor all of a sudden says, but... And if we're sitting in that room, hearing that diagnosis, and then we hear the word, but our hope clings to whatever comes after that but. That our only hope for anything to change is what comes, at, what comes next from that doctor. What is he going to say next? Because he's just told me how hopeless and helpless it is. And now he's saying, but whatever comes after is what I cling to. And that's exactly what Paul is going to do in this passage in verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As hopeless as our condition is presented in verses 1 through 3, the hope that's presented in verses 4 through 10 is absolutely incredible. And really just what I want us to see as we look back through this is our salvation in Jesus is better than we could ever imagine. That our, what it means to be saved in Christ is better than we could ever imagine. I think of how, how many of you have a tendency maybe to make something out, maybe something in the future, to be better than it actually ends up being. I do this all the time with vacations. 
I don't know if you do this too, but, but I, I get so excited about vacations and I, and I think about how perfect it's going to be and the sun's going to be shining and I'm going to be relaxing by the pool all day and nothing's going to go wrong and everything's going to go just as I want it to and this is going to be the greatest vacation ever and then I get to it, it's like, it's good, but it's not what I painted it out to be. I think the same thing often happens with movies. That, that people get so, especially sequels, people get so excited about. The first one was great, the, the second one's going to be so much better, and it's why the second one is often a letdown, because we paint it out to be better than it actually is. We can never do this with our salvation in Christ. We can never make it look or never think about it in a way that's better than act, what it actually is. We may misunderstand it, don't get me wrong, we, we may think... Um, well, to be saved means that uh, my life is going to go really well here and now. I'm going to be rich. Everything's going to be easy. And life is just going to be great here and now. And in reality, that, we misunderstand it. I think actually we settle for a lousy version of salvation if that's our idea. But if we have a true biblical understanding, if this is what it means to be saved in Christ, we could, it's better than we could ever imagine. I just want to look at what Paul lists off. There's four things here in the after picture. He made us, God made us alive together with Christ. No one can do this apart from God. Like, like undertakers do everything they can to make a dead body look good, but they can't do anything to give it life. Only God gives dead bodies new life. And I think what this looked like is God takes that heart that rejected him, that didn't want anything to do with him, that hated him, and instead gives a heart that loves him and desires him. Like the, the only reason we get to stand on a Sunday morning and genuinely sing songs of worship to God is because he's made us alive. Otherwise, we don't do that. The only reason that I have any, you, you and I have any shred of love for God in us is because God has put it there by making us alive. Otherwise, I don't love him. Otherwise, I'm his enemy. God has made us alive together with Christ. Then he goes on, Paul says, God has raised us with Christ. That the, the same power it took to raise Jesus' dead body from the grave is the same power I have in me now. That Whereas before I had no power to say no to temptation, no to sin, now I have the very power of Christ in me to be able to do those things. And, and then it just keeps getting better. He has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I love that picture. Paul talks about it as if this is already done. It's this image of we already have a seat in heaven, beside Christ, with our name on it, reserved for us. We have a reservation there that, that even though now we may not fully realize it or experience it, it's as good as done. It's done. It's past. We're, that, that's where we're That's Paul can talk about it. We're already seated there now. Just think about this for a second with me. How do I know that God isn't going to change his mind about me? How do I know that, that I'm actually going to get to heaven and what he has for me? How do I know God's not going to abandon me? How do I know he's not going to get sick of me? 
Anyone else spends a lot of time with me, they would get sick of me. How do I know God's not going to get sick of me? How do I know he actually is pleased with me? How do I know he, he delights in me, he favors, he, he smiles at me? Is it because I did my devotions this morning? Is it because I, I walked through the church doors this, this morning? Is it because I, I've been a good, nice person lately? No, those are lousy things to hold on to. Those may be good things to do, but those things can change. The reason I know he'll never abandon me is because he could just as easily kick Jesus out of heaven as do that. I'm seated in heaven with Christ right now. God's never going to turn his back on me or change his mind about me because I'm with Christ, not because of what I do. He's made us alive in Christ. He's raised us with him. He's seated us with him in heaven. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. I get this picture in my mind of this kid on Christmas who's opening gifts. And after every gift he opens, his parents, his dad says, but, but wait, there's another one. But wait, there, there's more. But wait, we, we've got more. That every single day in heaven, heaven's not going to be boring because every single day we're going to wake up to experience more of the immeasurable riches of God's kindness towards us. And even now, every single day we wake up, we experience more of God's immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us. Think about how that would change how we go about our day-to-day lives if we were fully believing that. The, the people, I think, who are the most joyful, the most happy, are not those who are trying to prove themselves, not those who are trying to just grind it out for another day. They're the people who are the most blown away by God's grace to them. And the people who are the most miserable in this life are the people who are the most entitled and think they deserve better than what they got. If we really believe, I'm an object of God's immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards me, how much more joy would that give me even in this life here and now as I went about it? I just want us to, to stop and again think about the before and after picture here. Before, we were blindly following the world and Satan, Paul says. Now after, we have the freedom and the life in Christ to love and worship God. Before, we had no power to say no to temptation and sin. After, we're able to joyfully obey God because we have the power of Christ in us. Before, here's maybe two of the best ones. We were sitting, we were laying in a tomb in a graveyard. And after, we are seated in the heavens with Christ. Before, we were children of wrath. And after, we're the objects of God's immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us if we could just see how incredible that before and after picture is and wrap our minds more around it, I think we'd be more and more blown away by God's grace. So what is the result of all of this? That's the last thing I want to turn to. What's the result of all this? What's the result of this before and after picture? And I want to set this point up by looking back to verse 4. 
Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 was originally just one long sentence. And so I think to be able to understand this well, uh, we need to, to think about some basic grammar. And I know you may hear that and be like, oh, that's so boring. But, but I think it helps set up this point. It's one long sentence, and it's only in verse 4 that we get to the subject of the sentence, the person who is doing all the action in the sentence. And it's God. That, that ultimately, it's all about what he's doing. So, so think about it this way with me. I think this helps maybe. Uh, if I'm trying to describe to you a baseball game, one play in a baseball game, and I tell you, uh, Timmy crush the ball out of the park. What is my goal in that sentence? My goal in that sentence is not so that you would think about how great the ball is. My goal is not that you would sit there and think, Timmy crush the ball? How white must have that ball looked as it soared out of the park? How was it spinning as it went through the air? How good were those, uh, th those red yarns that held it together as it flew through the air? No, my goal is to get you to see how great of a baseball player Timmy is. The goal of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is not ultimately to show us how bad we were, not ultimately to show us how wonderful we are in Christ. It's to show us how great God is. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is there for. To get our eyes on, look at how incredible and awesome our God is. See, the result of this before and after picture is our final point. That we are trophies of God's power and grace. We are trophies of just what God is capable of and how incredible his power and grace has been towards us. A trophy does not ultimately try to draw attention to itself. It points to how much better someone else is or something else is. I think if I, if I walk into your home and you're a hunter and you have a big buck mounted on your wall, the goal in that, in some ways, is for me to see how good of a hunter you are. Right? This is how great of a hunter you are. Maybe ask you, hey, how'd you kill this deer? Right? I, I chased it down with my bare hands and I threw a spear through it. I, I mean, I sat in my tree stand until it walked underneath and then used a really powerful gun. Same thing, right? Pretty much. It's to show you're, you're a great hunter. Why God has saved us is ultimately to show how great his power and mercy and grace is towards us. And then Paul says, this is why, by the way, Paul is banging on the drum of, by grace you've been saved, by grace through faith. This is not a result of your own doing. It's the gift of God. By grace you've been saved. Because he also wants to see it's all about God. It's all about what he's done. It's all about how incredible he is. We are trophies of his grace. Our stories, our lives are stories of how great he is. And then Paul says, and we've been saved not simply to sit on our butts and wait for heaven. This is where the trophy metaphor breaks down because we're not simply called to uh, stand on a shelf uh, and wait there till we get to heaven. 
Paul says, we've been saved so that we can walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand for us. That God has laid out for us, prepared good acts of being able to serve others, love others, care for others, honor him. And the only reason we can walk in any of those is because God's power and grace in saving us. I, I think this changes to how we approach thinking about we're called to do good works. Because I think sometimes we, we hear that, we're like, okay, I've been saved, now I'm supposed to live a life of good works. And, and sometimes we almost treat that as if, like, well, I need to do this to repay God, I need to thank him, uh, I, I need to really, if I really care about his love, I would be doing good works, and, and we can, or, or I need to, like, make myself look good, and so I do good works now. But how Paul's framing it is, any good work we do last week, this week, any act of love and service, whether that's just caring for our wives and children, loving our siblings, honoring our parents, all those things are done to display how great God's grace has been in our lives. And they're all done only because God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. Every single good thing we do in this life becomes an opportunity for us to, as little trophies, point back to God and say, look at how awesome he is. Look at how great he is. Look at what he's done. I used to be dead, now I'm alive. I used to be a child of wrath, now I'm seated in heaven. I used to just do whatever I wanted, now God has enabled me, called me to live a life of good works and love for others. See, th this picture, this before and after picture, is meant to get our eyes ultimately off ourselves and onto God. It, it's like a home renovator who posts a picture uh, to Instagram or posts pictures of his work to Instagram so that people would see those pictures and think, look at how great that home renovator is. Look at the work he does, right? Our lives, our stories, and our continued good works are meant to be pictures that display how great God's grace has been and how great his power is in our lives. And so this morning, I, I want to just close kind of with two uh, application points or questions, if you want to put them that way. The first is, do you understand your story in this way? And what I mean by that is, is this more than just a nice picture of theology to us? Don't get me wrong, you, you may have been saved when you were five years old because you prayed a prayer and realized you need Christ to save you from hell. And in that moment, you were saved. It's not that I mean you have to somehow like go off the deep end and everything goes wrong and then your God miraculously saves you. That could happen too. But, but maybe you were five years old and you just knelt down, you prayed a prayer. But do you look now and see, based on what the Bible says, in that moment, God raised a dead person to life. In that moment, God took a child of wrath and seated them in heavens. In that moment, I became the, or the object of the immeasurable kindness and grace of God. Or is this just a nice picture of theology that we like to think, that's cool. Because the difference there is massive. The difference is like the difference of us looking at a picture of the Pacific Ocean 
versus jumping into the Pacific Ocean, feeling the water, laughing as the waves crash over us, staring out at how massive it is before us. Like there's, an, there's a huge difference there between that's just a nice picture versus this is my story. And I think if, if we don't see this as our story, maybe one of the reasons is because we don't realize how bad we were apart from Christ and how great his grace has been to save us. I think of it, if you and I get bored with the gospel, if in some ways we get sick of hearing it, or, or we think God's love is just kind of ordinary, that his power is okay, and his grace doesn't blow us over, then it might be a good idea for us to kind of sit and soak in some of the before picture and realize this is who I was. This was my story. And God, by his power and grace, took me out of the grave. And now I'm a living, breathing miracle because of what he's done. So first of all, do you see your story in this way? And then the second question would be this. What good works has God called you or does God want you to walk in? For every single Christian, every single person who puts their faith in Christ, God prepares a life of good works for us. So what, what good works has God called you specifically to walk in? And then do you see those good works as an opportunity to display how great he is? Not to get people to look at you and look at how great you are, but to be able to display this is how great God is because before Christ, I never would have been able to do this. And now in Christ, I'm able to. That every single good thing you do this week is an opportunity for you and I to say, look at God. Look at his grace. Look at how he's prepared and enabled me to now walk, to love my wife sacrificially, to serve other people within the church, to, to give generously, to love my neighbor. All those things are an opportunity to ultimately point back to how great and wonderful and gracious God is in our lives. Uh, I think the people who are both the most joyful, I said this earlier, in life, and the people who are also the busiest in doing good works are not people who think, I need to earn my salvation or I need to do something to keep God's love. They're the people who are the most blown away by God's power and grace in their lives. And that has changed them so much that no matter what happens, they can have joy and they can see my life here is meant to be spent doing good works for God's glory. Let's close in prayer. Father, I so desperately want for myself to get a better picture of before what I was like, before Christ what I was like, and now after what you say about me in Christ. And God, I, I want that for myself. I want that for us as a church so that we would not make our salvation about me and what I've done or how great I am now, but ultimately we'd be able to get our eyes off ourselves and get them on you and say, look at how glorious our God is. Look at how great he is. 
God, I pray that as we go into even just a time of communion this morning, remembering that our only hope is in Christ's sacrifice for us, you would remind us, this is what you've done. This is how great you are. This is your power and your grace. It's all about you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.